Rooted in biblical and historic Christian faith, Northeastern Seminary prepares Christ-centered men and women for faithful, effective ministry to the church and the world. Season one of this podcast is from workshops and interviews made during Northeastern Seminary's Rebuild Conference in June of 2023. The conference was a two-day event that featured over 40 different presenters speaking on rebuilding the church as a responsive, justice-minded, and loving community in the divisive world of today. This episode is called Women and Men Together, Creating Safe Spaces in Our Church. To find out more about Northeastern Seminary and future conferences and events, or if you're interested in attending seminary after hearing a podcast like this one, head on over to nes.edu. Good morning. Thanks for thanks for being here. What a great day. Um, so I am going to. I have actually my greatest challenge this morning is thinking through. I have 20, 25 minutes. Yikes! I teach courses in this, so um, bear with me. I'm going to just paint a larger uh, picture of the some of the issues, the problem, talking about the cultural framework for this work, and then uh, Pastor um, Scott is going to talk about uh, more application within his church and um, some things that can really turn churches around to address uh, violence against women and other types of violence. So, um, so I thought I would start with a couple of short stories to illustrate. So in the old days, I've had a few different careers, and one of my careers was a social worker. So I was a social worker for a number of years, um, and this is going back to the early days. I even remember the days where um, battered women's shelters did not have any public funding. It was all grassroots. It was women in the community. Um, the one I became a part of had uh, a telephone in the local police station answering crisis calls, all volunteers. And then moved um, one of the churches, actually it was a Catholic uh, shrine donated their convent for uh, to us to have a shelter, but still, I when I was hired and I had my MSW in my hand and an MA in theology. The MA was just for fun for me back in the day <laughs> uh, when I was teaching. My first uh, life was elementary school teacher, and I just studied theology for the fun of it. But I got involved in social work because I was teaching in the inner city, and I ended up dealing with a lot of things outside the classroom. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a nice 20-something, uh, shelter 20-something. I don't know what I'm doing. I better go get my uh, degree. So I got a degree in social work, but there were no, even at that time, we're going back a few decades, um, there was no even courses in domestic violence. Um, so even if I wanted to take one as an elective, it just wasn't there. Um, these are the really early days where even among most states in this country, uh, you could not get a restraining order against an abusive partner without a lawyer, which made it difficult, you can imagine, for many women. Um, there was no such thing even as marital rape. If you were married, that wasn't, rape wasn't against the law. There's nothing you could do. So I'm going back early in the 80s. Um, and then something happened in the early 90s uh, where the Violence Against Women Act passed. So this is also a passion I have about public policy. Laws make a difference. So suddenly there was money available 
uh, that went to the states that shelters could actually get to. So I could actually hire a counselor and a caseworker and all those things. So my early days um, was running a better women's shelter and really it was just kind of not because I knew a lot, but I was just really learning and listening a lot to women's stories. I was also listening at that time to area pastor stories and women's stories. I'm like, we have a problem here. I'm not going to make the assumption that because a pastor went to seminary, he had a course, just like the MSWs didn't have courses. They didn't have courses in how to counsel women who have been abused or perpetrators of violence. Um, and then they end up in parishes or churches and who's coming to their door and telling their stories, right? So one of my first, let me tell you two quick stories. One of my first conversations with a pastor, in this, it was a small city in Massachusetts I was working in. And he called me and said, um, I need to know if so-and-so is in your shelter. And I said, well, that information is confidential. I can't release that. And he said, his voice elevated. And he said, well, obviously you're not a Christian. I still remember this. And his voice was all at the point where I had the phone, this is before cell phones, phone away from my ear. Um, he said, you're obviously not a Christian because um, that woman is in my parish, she's in my church. I'm counseling her husband. And then she took off. And yes, there was an abusive incident, but you're separating families in this community. And I have a real problem with what your shelter is doing. And I let him go on about that. And then when he took a breath, I said, actually, I am a Christian, and that's why I'm doing the work I'm doing. I believe God's desire and God's heart is for women to be safe in their communities. And he said, well, you're separating families. I said, well, we're not separating families. As soon as the violence happened, that was a step, right, that the perpetrator or the partner husband um, he went down that road of separating. I said, I'm not going to acknowledge who is in the shelter, who's not. Um, but if you want more information on this subject, I'd be happy to, to share it with you. So that was one kind of background story that got me thinking, wait a minute, we need to do some education here for pastors locally. I was just really concerned because I also, in my conversations with women, whether it was in the counseling office or the shelter, and I would ask, what support system do you have? Many of them had been in churches and then were no longer in churches. So I would always ask, why, why is that? Well, my husband or my pastor told me to say that my husband or um, to the point where they felt uncomfortable going into church um, because they didn't feel safe there or heard there or they felt guilty. You know, I didn't do what my pastor told me to do and try again, and I really have tried. And so there was a pattern of these stories um, also going on. And then when I came, I came here 20 years ago, um, it's my hometown. I had adopted my daughter and came back for it to connect with family for her to, well, for myself, but also for her, um, and started teaching at uh, Northeastern. And early in the days, we used to have, in April, a sexual assault awareness month. So we used to have these um, kind of awareness days and also prayer. Um, and we had one actually right in this building downstairs, I remember one evening, um, just to pray for victims and just to have, it was a really beautiful kind of thing for undergraduate graduates. 
And afterwards, a young woman, undergraduate, approached me and said, I'd like to talk to you sometime. So sure. Um, so we met in my office that week. Um, and she told me this story. She started crying. And she said, you know, I just happened to be wandering through the center. And I just started listening in. And I didn't know there were other young women like me. And she told me a story how when she was a child, she had been raped by a neighborhood um, guy. And she said, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to an evangelical church, local church. And she said, my whole childhood, and she said, as a teenager, I led the teen group. I felt so dirty because I knew I wasn't a virgin. Mm -hmm. And all I heard was, you have to be a virgin when you get married. And she said, I never even heard about sexual assault. And she grew up in a very kind of sheltered way. That story, I wept with her. So the stories are, that I hear are from individuals, right? But they tell the story about our culture and about our church cultures, about populations that don't feel safe or comfortable um, or don't know where to turn. And so I want to say this up front because I usually wait to the end and then either I forget or I don't throw them up. And I want to say this up front. If you don't have within your communities places for young people to hear about dating violence, sexual assault, I mean, that is age appropriate. If that is not integrated into your youth programs, please do that or consider doing that or bring someone in uh, to talk about that. I remember going into one church, and it was teenagers, they asked me to come in, the room was full of teens. Start just talking about dating violence, what love is, is what love isn't, and all that. And the parents were invited, so the parents were more on the, in the back, um, listening. And the kids started telling stories. Well, my, I have a friend who, I have a friend, and started telling these stories. And afterwards, I met with the parents, and they, they were all like, we're blown away. We had no idea our kids even knew someone, let alone, like, their, their level of awareness of this. So if they're not, if they don't have a safe place in our churches to talk about it, or a safe person to talk about it and disclose and get the right resources, it's not that they're not talking about it. They're just not talking about it with you or with the pastors or with the leaders. They're, they're talking about it. Or they're silenced, like the young woman had been silenced uh, the whole time. Um, growing up and you know I often say to audiences and this doesn't sound good but I'll just say um, that I have talked to a lot over 35 years I've been doing this work Christian audiences and secular non-Christian right different settings and also in counseling women who are Christian or non-Christian and the most difficult um, not just audience, but also in counseling, are Christians. Mm -hmm. And you might say, why is that? Mm -hmm. You think the most open, right, and receptive. And some of it is the cultures um, that some churches are steeped in. Certainly our society is. And that's why I just, I like, I'm a visual person, um, so I really like this because in one page I can create this. Um, I don't know, though. This goes way back. Domestic Violence Abuse Intervention Project, which is one of the early, early, early um, groups that worked on this um, in Minneapolis. Anyways, they came up with this. 
um, but how our culture, values, language, traditions, are you know all of this, and then inside the institutions, which includes our churches, right, government, police, and so forth. Why do we have? Why is that even permitted in our society? Violence against sexual assault, violence against women, girls. What? How can that continue? Because it's not just about. It is. There's interpersonal and micro dynamics going on, relational dynamics. But there's also historically, and we don't have time to go down that road, but historically and culturally supports for that happening. Um, so in the old days, I used to do a lot of police training. Um, and I heard my first, one of my first police trainings, half of the police got up and walked out of the room during, during my presentation. And later, after it was over, the police lieutenant came in and with a bunch of guys who had walked out behind him. And he said, do these guys walk out in the middle of your training? And I said, yeah. He said, do you mind like repeating what they said? So I kind of did, but I did anyways. <laughs> and sat them down, which was a really good police accountability, right? But some of the comments I got from the police was, why is this? We don't have time for this kind of stuff. We don't have time to arrest. You know, when we show up or she's crying or she doesn't want him arrested. So early on, the training in courts, I used to train medical personnel around because I had a problem with women in the shelter where all I noticed they would have to sign off their medication. And they all had these like heavy duty psychotropic medication they were taking. And I noticed it was always one doctor who was down the street. And so I met with him, he was affiliated with the hospital. And I said, I noticed all the women, I have mental health background counseling, these women are not psychotic, why are they? And he said, well, they come in, they're emotional. They're, I said, they're all traumatized. <laughs> they're all traumatized, so they don't need that because to have their emotions, right? So when I say cultural, I mean in every area, um, there has not been real accountability uh, for perpetrators and um, support for this work. And that includes the church. So some of the root, not, when I say church, I'm speaking broadly. Um, some church, and we'll hear from Scott, are really doing the work, um, which is wonderful. So I, I'm just talking about you know, generally. So some of the, what are the roots of violence against uh, women and any kind of, and if you notice at the middle, right, it's power and control, and if you flip it, this is more interpersonal. So when I talk about violence, I'm talking about a pattern, can be one incident, but usually in these relationships, it's a pattern of, it could be psychological and not physical. Like usually if I say domestic violence to someone, they think hitting, right, or it's like physical. Uh, or if I say sexual assault, you think maybe rape, right? But there's a, a whole lot of different behaviors. And when there's a pattern of having power and control, um, then that's abusive. So there's some just um, examples. You know, I've counseled women who have come in, and the common phrase, a woman will come in and say, I'm not really sure I'm here. I just feel crazy. It's actually mm -hmm. what I've come to say, crazy making, mm -hmm. which is really psychological abuse. Um, I just feel kind of crazy, and sometimes I've handed this out, and I said, can you circle maybe anything that might, because they will not identify as being abused. That in their mind is physical abuse. Um, in fact, I had a, a woman, a client came in, and I was running a group, and she said, it was the first night for her, she said, I'm not sure, I'm not really here, I know this is for abused women, and I'm not abused, and 
And as she started talking, she says, oh, you know, I don't work. I have to stay home, take care of the and all that. And someone asked her, what, you know, do you have background? And she said, well, I used to be an accountant, but I'm not smart enough anymore. And the other, what I love about group work, the work of the group is great, right? Another woman said, you have a degree in accounting. Like, well, my husband has told me I can't even balance a checkbook. So she started talking about the messages she has gotten over the years. Exactly. And it's very powerful how it changes then one's perception of self, right? Um, so she came in and said, but he never physically hurt me, but I feel crazy because I, I think I'm smart. I have this degree, but I, it's gotten to the point where I'm so isolated. He, she said, matter of fact, I had to make sure dinner was on the table and ask permission to leave, right? So um, this happens in churches and with pastors a lot. I had a pastor say to me, oh, I don't really need to talk about this stuff because there's no abused women in my church. And... Um, I actually had suggested maybe a relationship group because he didn't want to use that language. And I came in and did this relationship group, and guess what? I had 12 women telling me stories of abuse around the table. And another pastor said to me, well, I don't really need to get up and talk to the pulpit. Isn't that obvious you're not abusive to your I'm like, no, and there's all, so there just needs to be a real education, and even church cultures, right, can become abusive and almost impossible um, to break through if you have a real uh, kind of patriarchal system and hierarchical system where women don't have a say or don't have a seat at the table. And I mean, had pastors say to me, yeah, but we ordain women. Um, that doesn't really impress me because when I follow up and say, do you have women in your church who have authority in your church? You know, well, they're a pastor of children's or they're a pastor, right? But they can't preach um, or they can't lead or have authority in other areas. Um, so I'm kind of early in the early days when someone said ordain, I'm like, oh, okay, kind of, no, I've learned. Or someone else said, well, my denomination does ordain women, but we would never hire a woman to be a pastor. The, denom the denomination doesn't know that, but we know as a church, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this pattern, domination, patriarchy, and objectification of women and girls. Mm -hmm. And this also relates to the language um, we use, and I'll get to that in a minute. So see how much time. <laughs> I'm just going to read this quote um, and mention a few things that are really important, I think. Um, so the prevalence, and I, so people say, well, it's a really small problem or it's a few women. Um, this is from, and I really urge you to read uh, Nicholas Kristof's book and his uh, partner, Shira Wujan, wrote a book. He's a New York Times uh, columnist, Half the Sky, something about opportunities for women and girls globally excuse me, globally. It's a, it's a wonderful book. And there's a great website with different, in addressing violence in different contexts. And there was a PBS series a few years ago going around the world. And so when we talk about, whether we're talking about sexual assault or domestic violence or treatment of women, we're not talking about an American problem. This is globally. So when we talk about um, acid throwing, you know, or some horrific... Um, 
ways of keeping women dominated worldwide, that's connected to domestic violence here and sexual assault. So he writes, the global statistics on the abuse of girls are numbing. It appears that more girls have been killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls than men were killed in all the battles of the 20th century. More girls are killed in a routine gendercide in any one decade than people were slaughtered in all the genocides of the 20th century. In the 19th century, the central moral challenge was slavery. In the 20th century, it was the battle against totalitarianism. And we believe in this century, the 21st century, the paramount moral challenge will be the struggle for gender equality around the world. You know, I often think about um, how, the, how the church responds or doesn't respond around this. And what comes to mind is Martin Luther King's, one of my favorite quotes of his, where he talks about how when it comes to justice, the church is often the taillight rather than the headlight. And when it comes to this, in my experience of 35 years talking in all different um, places, and I teach a course on this every year, um, that it saddens me. There's been a lot of times I just weep um, that the church is often the taillight. We don't want you don't want to hear about this. And anyways, but you're here, so you're hearing about it. <laughs> um, so. When we talk, the other thing I just kind of red flag to think about um, a few things that happens in the church is one accountability. I see this as a pattern. We don't hold perpetrators of violence. When I say violence, I mean any kind of abuse accountable. I had many, many, many conversations where I hear things like, "Well, Beth, but he's such a great worship leader." For that a few times. Um, Someone said to me, a pastor said to me, he's so small, he's short, it's hard for me to imagine. I had a student who in a field ed placement came to me and said, you know, I know this woman in the church I'm placed in is being abused, and I talked to the pastor about it, and his response was, well, if I was married to her, I'd hit her too. <gasps> now, you know, if someone told me some of the things that I have heard, I'd say, oh, you're kind of exaggerating crazy, but... <clears throat> Those might be more extreme things, but when we don't hear, hear, have people being held accountable, we are part of the problem. I used to be part of an organization that ran groups uh, for perpetrators of violence in Massachusetts, and they were all, 99% were court ordered um, to be there. And one evening, a pastor walked in with one of my clients, and I was co-led the groups with a male counselor, which was, that's a whole other story that was really great. Um, anyways, he comes in with this, um, one of our clients, and he pulls me aside and he said, I just want you to know he shouldn't be in this group. I said, why is that, Pastor? And he said, because I'm counseling him, I'm trying to keep the family together, and you know, I don't think he really fits here. Now, he was court ordered because he was arrested for domestic violence, and it's a 40-week program. Honestly, it was a great opportunity, right? And I said that to him, what a great opportunity. We could work together. He's court ordered to be here. We are teaching, I went through, this is what we're doing. This is part of his accountability. And he's got to pay out of pocket every week for the group. That's accountability. He said, yeah, but you don't know, really know him. I said, well, I know enough because I read the police report and I've talked to the victim. Um, so 
I know sometimes we think, well, of course you have to hold, like in an abstract, yeah, of course you have to hold people accountable. But when it comes to relationships, especially in church, and I, I get it, it's very easy to overlook. And someone said to me, can we give him a second chance? Mm -hmm. And I said, but if he robbed a bank, would he be given us, mm -hmm. oh, he only robbed one bank. Let's wait till mm -hmm. he robs a second bank. Why do we excuse any form of violence, right, against any children? And this goes for boys, right? Any kind of sexual abuse of our children in violence. And I say women, men can be abused, but we know who shows up in shelters and hospitals, right, or women. Um, so accountability is central. The language we use, how we define it, call it for what it is. It's not acceptable. It's domestic violence. It's, it's violence, right? Any kind of pattern of power control. And if we don't name it, then we're not going to um, think. And I just threw this. Oh, I didn't throw it up. I'll just tell you. Um, Jonathan Cates, his last name is K-A-T-Z. He's done a lot of work with men. He works a lot with military and with sports teams. He's pretty nationally known. He, he's written books, um, and I'm missing the name. We use it in our classroom. Um, focus on... Um, men who are abusive. It's really worth looking him up. Anyways, he, he talks about the power of language and how we often focus on the victim. So he uses this as an example. Um, we'll say, he'll start out, John hit Mary. Mary was hit by John. John's still in the sentence, but now Mary's the subject. Mary was hit. John's no longer in the sentence. Mary is a battered woman. Now it's become her identity and John's nowhere to be Bomb, right? And that's what often happens. We see this as a women's issue. Um, and I remember when Scott approached me to come in um, his church, I said, you know what? I don't like anymore going to churches and doing one-shot deals. Because what will happen is I'll come in and I'll speak to the choir. And it's usually a group of women are interested and will listen because it's a women's issue or they think it is. But we go, oh, that's great. Or let's have a committee. Let's set up a committee to talk about this, right? That's not going to change a church culture. There has to be long-term intention and patterns of change. And I like to work with churches actually at least a year into, um, you know, see what, what else are you doing? What else is going on? And how else can we change that? Uh, listening circles, creating opportunities um, for women and for our kids to talk about this. So I'm sorry I went way off. So, good. Uh, you know, Scott, come up and um, I might like chat. Anyone who wants more information, I've got a ton of it. Um, feel free to email me. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. 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 Thank Thank it's a phenomenal book. I was going to reference it too. Um, I've got a couple of other resources and books up here that um, rocked my world. Um, so Scott Siddig, I serve as the lead pastor at New Hope Free Methodist Church. I'm down in the city of Rochester. And um, I belong to a denomination, the Free Methodist Church. Some of you are familiar from the church here. Um, that believes in ordaining women also believe that for a long time, going all the way back to the late 19th century, and it wasn't until four years ago that we elected our first bishop. 
about 150 some years after that was made a priority issue for our church. So I grew up in the Free Methodist Church. I grew up kind of believing that women could lead and be ordained and all of that sort of a thing. And, and I thought I had a little bit uh, of a head start on some of this issue. And then I went to seminary and I sat in Dr. Gerhardt's class and realized I didn't know anything. Um, I really didn't know anything. Um, I want to give you just uh, three kind of basic things to think about today. I'm going to put them in the form of an ABC. Because uh, I really think that we have to kind of start with the ABCs. It really is rebuilding, rethinking, reframing uh, for so many of us. And uh, I do wish, I, I'm obviously glad for everybody that's here, but I really do wish that more men were in the room. Because as Dr. Gerhardt said in many different ways, this is not a women's issue. This is a men's issue. And I think that was the thing that was really impressed upon me in walking through a class on violence against women. You know, you kind of hear women in the name, you're thinking... As a man, I'm thinking, you know, let's learn about some of these, but what I really learned through the class is it's not a women's issue. It is a men's issue, and we have to unlearn and relearn and reframe, and then we have to acculturate our churches and things in whole different ways than they've been acculturated. And uh, Dr. Hara does a phenomenal job of doing that uh, over the course of 15 weeks. So yeah, that she kept it to 25 minutes is uh, pretty good, but um, there's, there's no way to capture it in 25 minutes. So my ABCs for you today from a practical standpoint, uh, again, these are some things that we are just, we're working on. Uh, and, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But my ABCs are, are aware, Raise awareness, you have to learn about these things. And I could have used accountability, and I could have used advocacy, I could use a lot of A's, but I'm going to just start with, for an ABC, become aware, you have to orient yourself to the issues and to the circumstances and to uh, the, the issues that are out there. So aware, then build, and it is important to build into your church, into your systems, to your, you have to change the culture. Uh, you can't just preach a message. That was she, she drove that home many, many different times. And, and I, I had preached a whole sermon series. Before I took her class, I took a whole summer, and we preached on women of the Bible. I thought I was doing a pretty cool thing. You know, like we're, we're doing this, and we're raising awareness, because there's a whole lot of stories about women in the Bible. But how many of those stories are used as examples when preachers preach, especially male preachers, because we focus on Usually the men, the 12 disciples, Moses, Abraham, the patriarchs, all these sorts of things. There's wonderful stories about women in the Bible, and they need to be highlighted and elevated. So I thought I was doing a pretty cool thing. And then Dr. Harris like, yeah, but you can't just do that. Like It's a whole culture. You have to reframe the culture and make safe spaces. And so we had to build. And, and one of the things that came out of the class for me was an 18-month plan to build in and reframe and rebuild our culture. So we became aware, we build, and then my C is to begin to connect. Um, so I just wanted to highlight for you one thing that I noticed yesterday, and I'm going to use this as, a, as an awareness thing, because I, coming out of the class, there are some things that I just can't unsee. So I don't know how many of you were here for the opening session last night. I don't know how many noticed the very first song the very first phrase of the song. Does anybody know what that phrase was? I can't unsee this. Yes, the world will bow down and say you are God. Every man will bow down 
and yeah. say you are king. Anybody notice that? Yep. Yes. If you didn't notice it, that's part of becoming aware. I can't unsee that. <clears throat> now you might say that's trivial. Maybe it fits with, you know, like it's a single syllable as every man will bow, whatever. You can try to water it down. But it's pervasive. It's pervasive in CCM, all the Christian contemporary music. It's pervasive in the culture. It's pervasive everywhere we go. These are kinds of conversations that our worship team is having. These are kinds of conversations that our pastoral team is having. Why is it just, so women, you're off the hook, right? You don't have to bow down to the king anymore because it's just every man's going to bow down. Of course not, right? Every person. We're all made in the image of God, male and female made in the image of God. Why is it that we focus on just men? And that kind of language is what we have to become aware of and begin to change and to address so that it becomes much more inclusive and aware of that this is an image of God issue for all people. That's just one. That, that jumped out at me. I'm standing next to Pastor Marissa. She's my associate pastor. And I just looked at her. I just, I just laughed. Because this stuff what we talk about all the time, it was like, boom, right there. And of course, it's hard to sing the song after that, right? Because I'm just like, now I'm thinking about all this, but I had to take, I took a picture of it because I was like, there it is. Um, awareness. There's so many great resources. I just want you to be aware of the great resources. This book, uh, the quote that she read, I think is actually in this book. And uh, this is called The Cross and Gender Side. This is Dr. Gerhardt's first book. First book? But it's one of another one's coming. This gives you a real deep theological perspective on the issue of violence against women and the issues of violence against women around the globe. But but put it in a theological context. Why are we struggling uh, after all you know, two thousand years? Jesus has you know been raised and all that. Why are we still struggling to this day with these kinds of issues? And she really frames it in a very deep and theological way. So the cross and gender side is a fantastic book. A couple of other books, um, the Macho Paradox. You heard um, Catherine Clark Kroger and James Beck wrote this book. It's called Women Abuse in the Bible. If you want a biblical, like if you if you struggle, like how do I? Uh, understand the, the use of patriarchal language all throughout the Bible, and how do I address somebody that says, well, God is always used his father in the Bible, and how do we address all of those kinds of issues? You, you, there's many books that get into understanding the language of the Bible and doing a deep, you know, sort of biblical understanding of how we understand. Instead of stopping at Genesis 3, let's go back to Genesis 1, which I already quoted, right? Genesis 1, 28, we're all made in the image of God. And then you go into Genesis 2, it's not hierarchical language in Genesis 2. It's There's a whole deep theological and, and biblical understanding of the Ezer Konegdo and all of those sorts of language issues in there. So that book does a great job. But one of the other books that really rocked my world was this one. And this is Maelstrom, if you can't see it, by Carolyn Custis James. Um, man, she just, she breaks it down. She goes right to the heart of this particular issue, and that's patriarchy. And how our world and our churches, even my church, the Free Methodist Church, this self-proclaimed, we ordain women and we're kind of all in favor, like patriarchy. There are so many churches right now, free Methodist churches, who won't, it's not that you were talking about free Methodist church, but she knows, that won't hire women. 
they won't hire women as pastors. It's the Free Methodist Church. Now, that's not even SBC and so many of the others out there that are struggling with all of these issues, right? And we could talk about Rick Warren and all the other types of issues out there, but that's just part of becoming aware. We have to learn the culture that boys are raised in, the whole boys will be boys culture. We learn about that through the macho paradox, and Tony Porter has a great 10-minute video that kind of talks about that. If you just want to like raise some awareness in, in a leadership team meeting at some point, pull up Tony Porter as he talks about this. Man, he doesn't hold any punches uh, about the whole boys will be boys culture and how we raise them and how we acculturate them. And, and the whole process, I just, I can't emphasize enough coming out of the class that I took on violence against women, how I believe that part of every ordination process should include a whole class, yeah. not class, a whole semester <laughs> on learning about violence against women and shaping for men in particular to help shape that ordination process because it is pervasive. And, and I know that there are just there's so many fantastic women leaders out there, but they're not in the authoritative leadership roles, right? They're leading wonderfully in their own spaces, whether it's a women's ministry or a youth ministry or some kind of ministry within the church. They might even have the title of pastor, but the reality is they don't have the authority. They're not shaping the culture of the church. They're simply filling roles, doing things that need to be done, under the authority of men and leaderboards that are often men and, and other cultural elements that are often male-dominated. So that gets into the whole idea of how do we build? So we have to build a new culture and you have to kind of reframe what we're doing inside of our churches. So we took that on. I took on the project of building an 18-month plan coming out of my class with, with this whole thing. And there are so many different layers to it. It's, it's a long process, right? We can preach a sermon. We can focus on, in October, on Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And that's really important. You know, raise awareness, raise the issues. But then you move on to the next thing, and you're into Advent, and you're into other things. And I know as a pastor, it becomes like, how, how can we continue to address all these different things, right? I'm taking this class on the heels of the summer of 2020 and racism and justice issues and all these sorts of things and we're so obvious i mean white male bald guy who's trying to lead a church right i got all kinds of layers of things that i'm trying to work through as a pastor to address as a church how do you do all of it well you just have to you just press into it you start having conversations so one of the things that we began to do is actually i invited dr garrett to come in and she led a seminar for us uh, a series of three evenings where we just began to explore the issues. And then we invited up what she called as a listening circle, as a modified listening circle. I just invited people to come together in our community room, and we had a conversation. We opened it up. We're trying to create some safe spaces to have some conversations. And yeah, the stories that come out. She didn't quote the actual statistic, but it, the statistic is one in three. One in three women have been sexually abused or violated at some point in their life. Just look around the room. One in three. That just stops you in your tracks. I mean, if you look, if, if I'm a pastor and I look out on a congregation and I say, yeah, I don't know of any stories, 
oh, we might be okay, right? I don't know those stories. Mm. Yeah, no, I just I haven't created a space where it's safe to talk about those stories. Mm. Because those stories are there. Mm. Those stories are real, and they are affecting our congregation. Yeah. They're affecting the life of our congregation. Yeah. They're affecting the beauty of God's multifaceted image in our congregation, right? And there's so many things we could go into on, on refracting God's image and how when part of that is broken, we're not refracting the full beauty of God's image and all of those sorts of things I could, we could talk for a long time. We began to address issues like language, you know, just talking about the words that we sing in worship songs. And we began to think about biblical uh, language that we use and, and how to be a little bit more inclusive or how to raise awareness. We began to uh, address the, the types of examples that we use uh, when we're giving, uh, when we're preaching a sermon, who are we highlighting to offer an example of the things that we're trying to raise awareness about and, and all of those sorts of things. So we began to talk about that. We developed something. Uh, again, this is sort of building into the culture. Uh, we began to put something in our bulletin that says, you know what, if you've experienced or been a victim of domestic violence or domestic abuse or any form of sexual abuse, call this number, and we gave a hotline to the local hotline, and we also uh, invited people to let us know if they felt safe enough to do that. We put some signs in our bathrooms uh, to just let people know, because it's not an easy thing to talk about. You don't just go, women know this, you don't just go walk around, raise your hand, and say, yeah, right. uh, I want to talk about this. It's unsafe. It's not common. You don't want that. So we put signs in the bathroom to give them places that they could talk to or call, or, and, and there's just ways that you can address your whole environment, the building needs to be a safe space. We need to address those types of things. Um, simple things that I, as a guy, don't think about. So we have evening meetings, right? We have evening meetings for our leadership meetings and all that sort of thing. Well, I, as a guy, I walk out to the parking lot. I don't think twice about walking out to the parking lot at night. And women, as I'm getting to know these stories, like, Every time they walk into the parking lot, they're looking around, they're making sure they don't know like who's gonna be out there, right? So we had to do make sure that the lights are all working, right? We had one light that was out over top of the entry door and it was out for a long time. And I thought, well, there's a street light right there, we're in the city. And no, like we had to fix the light bulb and we had to like address simple things, right? It's it's to make sure that we are doing our best to make our building safe and welcoming and opening so that when somebody walks in, they can see visually. And that was uh, a message that was kind of addressed home. So there's low hanging fruit. Those are sort of the low hanging fruit. Um, but then you begin over time to build in the bigger types of conversations that need to be happening. You build in sermon <coughs> series, small groups, curriculum, different things like that. You connect with your community. Uh, we have Willow Domestic Violence Center. They'll come in. They'll do some trainings for you. We brought in Dr. Gerhardt because I was close to her at that time. And, and we began to have conversations. And, and we did establish a gender reconciliation committee within our church because I wanted somebody to help carry out the plan that I had put together. But it was not a committee to just kind of talk about. It was a committee to implement culture change. And so we began to look at all of those sorts of things. And then uh, evaluation needs to be built into that. Um, so I could go on and on, but we're, we're still working out the plan. I can't say that we have you know, conquered any of this by any stretch, but it starts with awareness and then be gilded, begin to build a comprehensive plan. And then the third is that C, and that is begin to connect with the stories 
that are there in your church or in your settings or wherever you are. It's beginning to connect. And once we did that, it kind of threw open the floodgates a little bit. We started to hear some of the stories, and, and some of them aren't current. Some of them go all the way back to childhood or experiences in um, when they went to university or different places like that. There's just there's all kinds of stories that begin to emerge, and you're like, okay, yeah, we have really got to do a better job. So within the context of our churches, we need to raise awareness. And again, this is a men's issue, so men in the room begin to talk to other men and let them know that this is important. This is essential to the life of our churches. It's not the only thing that our churches are going to need to address, right? There are issues of racism and injustice and all types of things, and we're trying to do all of those things because it's all biblical and theologically correct, and we want to live into all of it. But man, we have to put some effort and emphasis on it in this regard. So awareness, build, and begin to connect to those stories and make it a long-term effort and a long-term commitment. That was what was impressed upon uh, by Dr. Gerhardt to me. So uh, grab her book. It's in the bookstore. Watch for her next book that's coming out that will offer you some pastoral help. And um, yeah, I'll throw it open for... Good morning. My name is Annie. I'm an alumni. I graduated from the U.S. But I want to ask you a question about the ABC methodology that you, it was well done. And I was wondering, when you were able to use that method, did you get a sense of women being liberated or felt a sense of freedom when you opened up that Pandora box? Mm. I, I did. I, I'll give you two. It's two sides of a coin. I'll be interested, uh, interested to see what you think of this. But on the one hand, yes, because as we began to have conversations, people began to share their stories. And it was a very, I would say, liberating, like almost like, oh, wow, we can talk about this. So there was that sense that we could have these conversations. It could be productive. It could be healthy. It could be safe. I began to get that sense. It was interesting to me that some of the greatest pushback that I got in pushing into this was actually from women. Because it wasn't, it was from, I will say, particularly very conservative women who had been raised in very conservative settings. And actually opening up this conversation was challenging paradigms and comfort zones for them that actually pushed back against opening up and, and being more inclusive in our language when we talk about the Bible and, and how yes. we understand God and all that. It was very fascinating to me to find I actually received more pushback from women than I did from men. I didn't expect that. But the women that responded were very open and, and welcoming of it. I, I am so thankful for this particular seminar workshop. Let me tell you the reason why we really want to be transparent with the I spent some years in the military in the army, and uh, and I was violated. And I went to share this with one of the medical doctors, and it was like he totally dismissive and so forth. Well, I'm telling you, I live. I'm gonna tell you how old I am. Many many years with that going through life with that pain. 
that struggle. And I've always felt that the church needs to address these issues. And um, we're, we're, we're getting there. And I, I think we need to um, spread the word a lot more and share it. So I'm hoping that this is being recorded. We can get a DVD or something <laughs> so that we can share with those churches and leaders. Perhaps they will become sensitive to a cultural change and connect. And I say thank you to you and Dr. Diane, I just want to say thank you for being vulnerable to say that. That's, that's really powerful. And that is. Uh, so much a part of how this conversation begins is when we create a space where that is safe to say. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done. So I have two questions. Um, one is, do you think the roots of a lot of this comes from our approach to the Bible? Um, I feel like I see people that approach our Bible as a textbook. And so they want to copy the practices and the customs of the people group in the Bible. Um, and that's always going to lead you towards these, some really awful things actually in human society. Um, and so I was just curious if you see that as being kind of a root to a lot of this stuff. And then my second question is, so I'm really interested in multiracial churches, multicultural churches. And I find that this issue becomes a huge problem as that happens because if you have people from all different countries and backgrounds, um, there's very patriotic, um, patriarchal. yeah, patriarchal like groups that come together. And so I just wanted to know if you had any advice for facing that. I address the second one, but I'm going to let the professor address the first one. <laughs> yeah. So I, as I mentioned at the beginning, like. Uh, counseling Christian women are always difficult because of the biblical. So a quick example, a woman even told me this horrific story of physical abuse over years and years. And she'd been part of this church and she was sharing it, but she was very defensive of her husband. Mm -hmm. And she said, who was a leader in the church, and said to me, Beth, you don't understand though. He knows the Bible so like, if he was here, I remember her saying, if he was sitting here right here, he could like recite books in the Bible to you. And I said to that, that first of all, doesn't impress me. But, um, you know, I But she couldn't get over, well, he keeps talking, so he repeats Bible verses to her because he knows it so well. And the church thinks he's, you know, wonderful. Um, the submit, it does say submit, it does say submit. And I said, well, it actually says submit one, you know, one to another, right? And yeah. submit and love each other. And I can't tell you, I mean, the number of sermons I've heard about, too. I was a guest at a church once, it was Mother's Day of all days, um, and the pastor talked about the submission thing. No, oh, you're a mom, and you're one of them, the whole submission. And a couple of women who knew I was there came up to me and said, that must have bothered you so much. And I said, you know what? It, I'm in and out one day, and I have my little girl with me, so I have my I do wonder to listen to any of that. So, um, but I said, you, this is your pastor, and this is your church. You hear this all the time. So, yeah, those, and it makes, I, honestly, I'll be honest, I'm, 
we have a Bible scholar um, in the back here. <laughs> it makes me angry when I hear scripture perverted in that way yes. and it's used as a weapon. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's used as a tool and a weapon to harm people. And anytime it's used in that way, it is not the gospel of yes. Jesus Christ. Right. That's right. right. Uh, but there are those layers you have to kind of work through um, interpretation with Christian audiences. And Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And um, the only reason I thought of answering your question with, this, with the second question is that uh, we have had a lot of uh, African immigrants come to our church over the last 10 15 years um, African culture is tremendously patriarchal in its roots and origin and there's a lot that we can unpack there trying to address the, <laughs> these issues through the lens of diversity and, and working through the lens of multiculturalism and the multi-ethnic church has been a challenge and I think for the sake of time I'll just say yes it's a huge challenge that we've tried to to talk through and work through um, and a lot of the ways that we think about it are trying to develop the second generation the first generation is pretty well established and in some ways even stuck in what they were raised to know and there's an element of wanting to respect that and learn about that, and, and so there's there's learning that goes into that, but then the next gen, the second gen, the kids that have been born here, there is an opportunity to change some of that perspective and, and help them see uh, a little more broadly. So it is nuanced and difficult, but it needs to be done. Uh, my name is uh, Christian Klebs. I'm an MEF student. Uh, I have a question, just some background information uh, before I get there. When I was in middle school, my father committed domestic violence against my mother, and he was divorced. Some of our family friends actually sided with my father, saying that she should have stayed in the marriage to work it out because it was just abuse. And I, my question is, do you think that a misunderstanding of the context of Matthew 19 about divorce and adultery contributes to this misimpression of minimizing, denying, and um, blaming abuse. I mean, my understanding of the context is that it's about when men can divorce women, not when women can divorce men. I mean, he, Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy 24.1 about indecency and defining it as adultery. Exodus 21.11-12 says that if a man does not provide uh, food, clothing, or marital rights, a woman can leave the marriage. And um, Dr. Gerhard, you alluded to Ephesians 5.21, so we need to learn that out of reference. The full passage says that um, men need to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So I think if a man abuses his wife, he destroys that Christian marriage by failing to live up to that standard. Great. I, I think you said it. Yes. <laughs> well, I do think it's taken out of context and, and very much to Dr. Herod's point, scripture is very often used as a tool or a weapon to justify certain things that are not healthy, that are incorrect, they're frankly abusive, and, and I don't think that we can we should be doing that or allowing that any longer. So yeah, I think you said it that that's inappropriate interpretation. 
to be using those scriptures that way. We don't really have much to add to that. <laughs> How would you conduct a body a presentation on this subject to an audience of men? If you were doing a men's breakfast or a men's retreat or whatever the context is, and you were addressing men exclusively, what would that look like? I would hope you wouldn't club them over the head and say you're the villain on taking advantage of these poor victims, but rather to approach it positively, scripturally, practically. How would you, what would you challenge men to do if you had an audience? I don't think I would club them over the head. That wouldn't be nice. I don't think you can be nice. It's not an issue where men get a pass. I probably would start out by showing them the video by Tony Porter. And I encourage y'all to watch that. It is an in-your-face video. But it's done in such a way that you have to own that this is how this men are often raised and acculturated into these types of behaviors and issues and, and how they see women and the whole objectification of women and the patriarchal culture. It's like swimming, it's fish swimming in water for men. And so you have to start by raising awareness. Yeah, it's not necessarily that you start like you guys are worse. It's not all that. But you don't, you can't be soft. You can't go at it in a soft way. So you've got to be able to, to have the conversation by allowing men to see what they can't already see. And that starts by showing them some things about themselves that they don't already know because it's fish swimming in water. So I would try to find those resources that could open up those conversations with those aha moments. But even just listening to Dr. Gerhardt, listen to those stories of how women the women were treated by the police, for instance, you know, in domestic abuse. It's always like a, a woman's fault. Or having conversations about uh, rape culture. You know, why is it that, it, that a woman was like, it, it's always about the woman, the way you dress. It's not about the women. It's about them. Why was the, it's all about the men. We've got to be able to have hard conversations and go there in very, very direct ways. Because you've got to shake men out of the comfort zones that they live in. They don't, a lot of men just don't see it. Right. And so um, for me, and again, I'm, I, I was going through this at the same time that Ravi Zacharias, I went through this class when Ravi Zacharias, we were having these discussions, Ravi Zacharias was called out and, and found out for his inappropriate behaviors. I revered Ravi Zacharias. Mm -hmm. Dr. Gerhardt will tell you, I, I had a hard time. We, I was in a class with all women, first of all, right? And <laughs> Ravi Zacharias gets called out for this stuff, and I'm like, I, I didn't want to believe it. I'm a guy. I'm a white male. I didn't want to believe Ravi Zacharias, this guy that I revered as an apologetic. I learned my apologetics from Ravi Zacharias. And they're like, yeah, no, he, he discounted himself. His behavior discounted himself, and I'm like, same time, Deshaun Watson was accused by 23 women of inappropriate behavior. I'm a sports fan. I love Deshaun Watson. I watched him all through Clemson and 
national championships. And I was having, I'd have conversations with my boys and said, Deshaun Watson did some bad stuff. And we cannot hold him on a pedestal because he's a star quarterback. Right. Right. And I was having those conversations with my boys because I'm like, man, we, Deshaun Watson. And his career's been derailed by all of that. So, you know, these are the kinds of things when you, you begin to become aware, you can't unsee these things. Because you can't unsee them, now you gotta help other people become aware of them. But as a as a white male, this this crosses over into race and justice, right? Like when you have issues of patriarchy and power and control and domination, like you don't go easy on white people either. Right? And it's not about beating everybody up, but you've got to confront real issues. And it's got to be tough conversations. And it's got to start with a baseline of awareness. Can I just, I have got to say before the end of the session, like, as a woman who's been doing this work for 30, blah, 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 years, blah, long time, I cannot tell you what's going on inside of me right now just with listening to Scott, yeah. because he is an ally. I have a male ally who is talking about this. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how powerful when men, even in their, whatever sphere they're in, speak up, or if there's a joke being told or something, say, no, that's offensive. Speak up and be allies for the women in your life. And I'm, I'm thinking about my daughter who at 17 came to me was with the whole Trump Thing, um, whatever that was, and it said to me because it was locker room talk. That's what she was hearing. Oh, boys, oh, it's locker room talk. And like, ha joke. And she came to me one day and said, "Mom, do boys talk like that in locker rooms?" Because she's seventeen. And so we need to sit down and talk about that. Like, no, not all men talk like that in locker rooms. But that's what she was here. It just suddenly dawned on her. Oh, I, oh my boys, you know. Are they talking about me like that? Are they talking about my girlfriends like that? Like, what's going on? But men need to be, you know, the way Scott is, and please, you know, talk and talk it to your kids and, and in your churches and going in because so many times as women we speak up, it's like, uh huh, I know that. I'm in meetings sometimes, like, oh, there goes Beth again. <laughs> in certain places, like, oh, but you know what? If there's a, a male who's Speaks up, not because I'm weak or I need, but but saying no, this is about not just a women, but it is men and women. So men, you better be there and be present and talking about it too.